Good evening. Thank you very much for coming out tonight and for participating in this campaign, giving yourselves to it. It's very encouraging to us as your pastors to see you all taking steps of faith. Thank you very much for that. Our passage tonight comes from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 2, starting in verse 12. There's a lot that could be said by way of explaining how it is that Paul came to write these words. In his first letter to the Corinthian church, the apostle Paul had been very bold in attacking their sin of pride, which had manifested itself in divisiveness and fighting and boasting and selfishness, but um, most importantly, in, in their uh, toleration of a notorious sin in their midst. There was in that church a man who, as Paul said, had his father's wife. He had a contrary to the law of God and contrary to nature and contrary to even what the, the pagans themselves tolerate in their society. There was this man who married or was intimate with his mother, or at least his father's wife, and um, he was so brazen, so proud in his sin that he paraded it shamelessly in the church under the, under the banner of Christian liberty. And nobody was doing anything about it. And they, in fact, the, the church itself was proud um, that they had the, the progressiveness, the toleration to put up with this in their midst. Paul, though, the father of this church, the one who had founded it, was, um, was horrified and he, you remember this, in, in the Lord of the Rings, the first book at, towards the beginning when Bilbo's not wanting to give the ring back to Gandalf or put it on the mantle or something and, and Gandalf sort of has to loom large um, and frighten him into doing it. Paul, in his, in his letter, very much increases to the height of his authority and, and he pulls out all the stops to, to demand of them that they discipline this man. He says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? You have to get rid of this in your midst. The whole church is in danger the longer this goes on. Um, so that was his first letter to that church. It remains one of the most past, pastorally helpful letters that God has preserved for us in his word. And it's a masterpiece. It's absolutely an unbelievable letter. It has, for instance, 1 Corinthians 13 in it. You know, that wonderful, beautiful, eloquent passage that we all know and love. But I don't think Paul, as he had sent this letter, as he's writing it, is, is very much aware of the service he's done to posterity in writing 1 Corinthians. Um, I don't think he's feeling particularly pleased with himself for the amazing words that he's been able to craft in this letter. Rather, I think he's feeling very vulnerable and weak and anxious. He's suffering from the same feeling that you and I often or sometimes feel when we've, when we've pressed send on a very difficult email to someone. We've worked very hard to carefully say what needed to be said. We've tried to say it in love um, and we've had the faith to press send. And then immediately, how do you feel? <laughs> Sick to your stomach, anxious in your spirit. You have no rest until you know how you've been received. You, you're just like... It's just, it's on your mind, it's all consuming. This is how Paul is feeling as he sends this letter to the Corinthians. This is why in chapter two, starting in verse 12, um, that um, 
that he says that when he came to Troas, he had no rest for his spirit, not finding Titus, his brother, there. Paul had sent Titus to Corinth to take the measure of the church and to see how they had received him and what was going on there. He was anxious for news. Um, And when he came to Troas, he was expecting to meet Titus and to receive a report from him about the Corinthians, and Titus wasn't there. And even though there was a door open to Paul for the ministry, he goes on to Macedonia because he's so anxious to hear uh, and to find Titus and to hear what's going on with the Corinthians. He loved them so much. Well, Paul did eventually find Titus, and he received from him the happy report that the Corinthians had done the discipline. They had, they had obeyed Paul, and they had cast the man out of the church, and, that, and, and it had borne the fruit of repentance in this man's life. And now Paul has the joy of writing to them again and telling them to welcome him back and to forgive him. And as Paul is recounting all this to them in his follow-up letter, and just as he gets to the point where he's telling them how greatly he was afraid and he was anxious, had no rest in his spirit, and he couldn't find Titus, and he's telling them all this, suddenly he has this sort of interruption of his train of thought. It's not really an interruption, but it's like he has this, what Paul often does. He's just sort of overwhelmed by the goodness of God. And he gives himself to praising God in the middle, in mid-sentence, in mid-thought. And he just sort of, he has this moment of, of ecstasy, of ecstasis, of, of getting out of himself and rising up and looking down on his life and his ministry on, on the highs and the lows. And he's just, he suddenly sees what God accomplishes through him. And he's overwhelmed and he gives glory to God. And in the process of giving glory to God, in the process of just giving this little aside in the, in the letter... He, he, he gives us incredible encouragement for the work that we have set ourselves to do this year, the work of evangelism. What does he say? Well, he says in verse 14, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. This is the, as I've meditating on this passage, it reminded me very much of Max Carell. There's lots of discouraging conversations that Max has to put up with, and he's, he's prone to discouragement himself. But he's the one that we count on around here to rise above and have a moment of, of ecstasy, of ecstasy for us all, where he can say, I know this, this is all discouraging, but God is so faithful. God is so kind. And he's, he's working. He's working through us. We should all learn to imitate Paul and Max in this. We, it really is um, a practice that we should give ourselves to. But then what can we learn from Paul's um, moment of ecstasy, his little aside here, uh, concerning our Love Bloomington campaign? Well, Paul declares a number of instructive and encouraging things for those who desire to be faithful witnesses for Jesus. The first thing is, we learn here that whenever we open our mouths to speak about Jesus, God always makes those efforts, those words, successful. Always. 
He says in verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Wherever we go with the gospel, we go there in triumph. This is a categorical statement that Paul makes. He doesn't qualify it or take it back in any way. Whenever and wherever we speak of Jesus, God is there leading us in triumph as we do it. If you were a soldier in an army and the victory had been assured to your side, that there was no doubt about it, it was sort of like it was a given that you were going to win and, and you knew this, how would you fight in that battle? How would you fight? If you knew victory was assured, how would you fight? I don't think you'd be lazy. I think you'd be all the more vigorous, all the more joyful. You'd be even gleeful as you gave yourself to that battle because you know you're going to win. When Joshua was conquering the land of Canaan, you may remember that it, it says several times it may, that the reason he so easily conquers some of these peoples and defeats them and destroys them is because God put in them, like made their hearts to melt at the thought of Israel and what God had done for them. Confidence wins battles. An army that's dismayed, an army whose heart has melted, is an army that's already defeated. You can't win a battle if you feel defeated. This is why Joshua, at the beginning of his ministry and leadership of Israel, was constantly commanded by God to be strong and courageous, very courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's repeated to Joshua many times early on in the book of Joshua. We are soldiers in Christ's army, and God would have us be confident in his power to grant us victory. He's giving us tonight... In this passage, the same assurance that he gave to Joshua, he says to us, clear note, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He will always lead you in triumph. He himself will make your preaching, your prayers, your testimony, your witness to be successful. If only you'll open your mouth and be faithful to preach the gospel. How do we know that it's by our words, by our words and not just by our our example that, that Paul says we'll be led in triumph by God? Well, there's an old saying, I'm sure you're aware of it, I've heard it many times, that uh, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. You've heard that before? Preach the gospel at all times and only when necessary, use words. How do we know that it's through our preaching with words, actually, and not simply through our lives, our example, that Paul says we will triumph? It's because he says here that God is spreading through us the sweet aroma, not of niceness, not of, not of congeniality, not of a good um, living example, but of knowledge. He's spreading through us the sweet aroma of knowledge. He says in verse, the second half of 14 that it's the knowledge of him that he's spreading in every place. When I was, uh, well some years ago, actually what brought me to Indiana University to study music is I had been awarded a, uh, a fellowship by a Christian organization. Um, they had given me some money to study at a top five university and IU qualified and I got in there and um, God had provided me the, the way of, of affording it. 
through this organization. And then when, when the time, the money ran out, the period, the period that I had this uh, grant ran out, um, I, they, then a, they sucked me in as a, a reviewer of applications for future recipients of this award. And they still to this day ask me every, every fall to, to participate in that. And I just despaired after a couple of years of doing it because the musicians, um, they're all to be Christian musicians and as part of the application they have to write an essay that talks about um, their witness, their vision for how to be a witness in their calling. And I just despaired because never actually did I find an application. There was no lack of talent, many world-class musicians, um, but there was never in any application did I find anybody who rose above this vision. I want to be the best pianist or clarinetist or whatever I can be to the glory of God. I want to be so good, in fact, that people will just like get revival when they hear me play Bach. <laughs> and I mean, really, that was what the vi- their vision for, for their calling was. And it was just so depressing to me. I'm all, uh, if, if, if this were possible, if this is what God had ordained for saving people, then many, many IU students would be ordained, because, or not ordained, but <laughs> Christians. They would have become Christians. There would be a revival on campus. There's performances of Bach every day on campus. World-class performances every day on campus. And yet no one's coming to know the Lord through it. What should Christians do? What should they have written? Oh, I would love to hear them say that they want to be an excellent musician. But really that's like no duh, right? I want them to be an excellent musician who has just a little bit of faith to open their mouth and talk about Jesus to the stand partner that they sit next to in the orchestra, to in the, con- in the program notes of the recital. If they could give any any vision for that, I could get excited about them. We can't spread the gospel without words. Of course, it helps to have a life that agrees with your testimony, but we must bring ourselves to use words if we hope to triumph in Christ in the way that Paul says that we can. Example is insufficient to save a soul. There are definite truths that must be understood and, and believed in order for our neighbors to be saved, in order for us to be saved. And we are the keepers, the, benef- the benefactors of those truths. We have received them. We have believed them. We're the ones responsible to teach them, to proclaim them. Paul, in another letter, says, How will they believe in him who have they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Now, what is the knowledge of Christ that is talked here? Well, we tend to think of this far too narrowly, I think. The knowledge of Christ, we think, oh, we have to do evangelism. Well, that means sitting down and going through the Romans road of the plan of salvation with somebody. And of course, that is evangelism. That's wonderful. If you can get there, that's wonderful. But there's a whole lot more to the knowledge of Christ than that very narrow view or of, of evangelism. In fact, this is the knowledge of Christ. Every word of this book is the knowledge of Christ. And it has applications to all areas of life. 
There's wisdom from God, and it all has its reference in Jesus Christ, and there's a whole world that this applies to, all kinds of particulars and details. Let me give you an example from my own life. It's not something I'm totally proud of myself for. In fact, I felt very weak, and and looking back, I don't think I did very much, but I think God used it. I, I have served, Jenna mentioned that we live in a, in a condominium, and I have served for several years on the board of directors for that, that, the homeowners association. And we hired a management company to help us manage the property. And the CEO of that company was very involved with us because it's hard work to get an HOA started. Um, and so we had, to get, we had to write bylaws and we had to do all kinds of things. And she, she was very involved with us. We worked closely with her. And I was just, you know, I could have, she would have been very happy to let me lead, have, let me, or for me to let her lead all the meetings. And, but, you know, I'm thinking, I'm a, I'm a man and I'm, God put me here and I need to lead. I'm bad at it. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm relying on her to help give me direction when I need it. But, but I'm trying to lead and I'm trying to be a good, wise, patient, fair leader who have different mindsets and different viewpoints represented on this board and we're trying to argue and we had some conflict and I'm trying to mediate and all I'm doing is what I what I've seen modeled for me here in the church in elders meetings I'm just I'm suddenly I'm it's all like vivid I'm like I I know about this I know how to handle this situation and I'm just doing it because I've seen it. And all that I've learned from the pastors and elders here who are over me is things they've learned from men who are over them, and they all come from Scripture. It's the wisdom of God applied to a practical question of how to lead a group of people to make decisions. And, and so then we go on, and I, and I think, I'm thinking, I should, I should have faith to start these meetings with prayer, and I don't, and I haven't. I should tell all these people about Jesus Christ, and I haven't, and I didn't. Not proud of that. But then when I came to resign from the board, um, because we sold our condo and I couldn't continue, I sent a resignation note to them, and then I hear from this CEO, this woman, and she says, Jody, I just want to thank you for your leadership of of this board, um, you probably don't know this, but during that time, I was going through some very difficult things, and I saw in you an example that helped me figure out some very difficult interrelational things. And so I have an opportunity. I respond to her, and I say, oh, I'm very glad. I'm very glad to hear this, but you just need to know anything that you've seen in me, I've just received. I, I said, I actually quoted Paul to the Corinthians, I think it is, where he said, um, why do you boast as if you had not received it? <laughs> and I, I said, all of this comes ultimately from God, any good thing you've seen in me. And so I give glory to God for that. And I, I, I responded to her. And then she responds very cordially and thankfully and then asks me to be a reference for her. And I, and I, I say, let, let me know if there's anything that the church or me can do for you. And I think that I'm, I have made a lifelong friend and I think that I hope to see her and build on that work, that very pathetic work. I didn't have much faith, but it mattered. It did something. And that is spreading the knowledge of Christ in every place, to some degree, because it comes from 
the wisdom of the church, which comes from the wisdom of Scripture. There was another young man in our church, and boy, I wish, I wish the family was here because they could tell me the details. They told us in small group, and I just forget the details. Jenna, help me out. But there was a young boy who was at the YMCA, and what was the question that was put to him? Does anybody remember that was in my small group? Well, some, somebody's mom had told this other little boy something about bugs that was just not right, and it was not, it was like contrary to God. What? Yeah, bugs have a soul. And he says, no, they don't. No, they don't. And they, they go back and forth, and ultimately he just says, you need to believe in Jesus. <laughs> and he says, well, I, yeah, you know, Jesus and is like best buddies with Santa Claus and something else. The boy responds like with sort of equating, and, and he says, no, they're not equal. <laughs> not even in the same league, kind of a thing. And this is spreading the knowledge, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ. Paul t- calls it an aroma, and we should think of it like, I know it's cheesy, but we should think of it like we've got this bottle of Jesus Christ perfume, the wisdom of God, the glory of Jesus Christ, which we have received from the preaching and teaching of the church, and wherever we, can, we go, we just pss, pss, spray that knowledge all around us and fill the air with it. You, moms, you go, to the, the, you go to the store with your, with your troop of children and somebody says the classic, um, boy, you've got your hands full. And you go, pss, pss. Yes, children are a blessing from the Lord. We're so thankful to be as wealthy as this. Thanks be to God for his kindness to us. Pss, pss. And you have filled Aldi, Marsh, it'd probably be at Marsh, not so much at Aldi. You filled Aldi or Marsh with, the, with the, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You go to the gym like I did this winter and hopefully not fail like I did and think of the, the great thing you could have said later. But everybody complains about the weather, right? Especially in the winter. And this guy says, the classic, oh, I'm just so sick of the snow. I think we're getting some more today. And I wish I had said to him, yeah, it's very inconvenient and annoying, isn't it? The winter's here. But you know, I've come to be grateful for the snow because it reminds us of the purity of Jesus Christ, that he washes us clean, that clean, whiter than snow from our sins. I could have said that and just fill the locker room with the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is what we need to, to practice in our lives. We need to spread this aroma around us. Nothing can stop that fragrance when we spray it from spreading, from, from doing its work. Once you've spoken something like that, it's out there and it's going to have its effect. It, it, Isaiah the prophet says that my word which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And that depends on what? Who, how will they hear if nobody preaches? It depends on us speaking out loud God's word. When we speak God's truth, it always accomplishes what he intends. 
And this leads to the second encouragement from this passage that triumph, this kind of triumph, this spreading abroad, the, the, the knowledge of Jesus, according to God, it takes more than one form, this triumph. We think of triumph only as, you know, like somebody is converted. That's not the only kind of triumph that the word of God um, brings about in this world. There are two responses in scripture to the faithful preaching of the gospel. There's what must I do to be saved response. And there's the away from this man from the earth kind of response. There's the, there's the I want rid of this preacher. Both responses are acknowledged here in this passage as, um, as being pleasing to God and as under the heading of always triumphing. So when Paul says that uh, here in verse 15, we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. He's, he's teaching us that that triumph looks like both things. Do you see how he turns from talking about how we're an aroma among, uh, um, uh, in, every, in every place to we are suddenly an aroma to God? So that, when, that among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, we are an aroma, an offering that ascends to God. And the implication is that God is pleased with both outcomes from us. Paul unites both responses, the, the what must I do to be saved response and the away from such a one from the earth response under the banner of triumph. Both ascend to God as an aroma of Christ. Both responses, the aroma of life and the stench of death are pleasing to him. This is, this is wonderfully freeing to us in this campaign. We learn from this that it's not our job to win anybody. It's not your responsibility to convert anybody. It's your responsibility only to send out God's word, to put it out there and let it do its job. It actually has this double job to do, to save those for whom Christ has died and to further harden and condemn those who are, are condemned by God. And so we don't have to peddle God's word. <laughs> this is why Paul talks about peddling. We don't have to peddle God's word. We don't have to pander to anybody. We don't have to tickle ears. We can just put it out there pss, pss, and trust God to accomplish his purposes through it. And trust that whatever the response is, it goes up to God and he's pleased with it. And not only this, but it allows us to actually feel the pleasure of God upon us, even when somebody's spitting in our face. We can, we can know that God is pleased with that offering. We presented our bodies as a living sacrifice and God is pleased with it. It's, we put it out there and he's doing what he intended to do with it and he just is rejoicing in it we can feel and know the pleasure of God even in the face of opposition so brothers and sisters be loosed to proclaim God's word in Bloomington take joy in giving glory to God by proclaiming the sweet aroma of Christ in every place
Now lastly, do you see that little rhetorical question that Paul asks there at the end of verse 16? And who is adequate for these things? I think that's just one of the sweetest things in scripture. Paul just throws it off. It is very sweet though. What does it teach us? Do you feel weak in evangelism? Do you feel like you don't have good words to say? Do you always kick yourself and say, well, I could have said this and it would have been totally awesome, but I didn't. Do you look at others who seem like they're quick on their feet and always good in a conversation and a give and take kind of thing and you just feel very discouraged about yourself and you think, it's hopeless, I'm gonna give up. Well, this teaches us that we have to give that excuse to God. Paul's asking a question, but he's really making a statement. He's, he's saying no one is adequate in themselves to preach the gospel with either of these effects. Only God is adequate to make anything happen in this world, particularly when it comes to the soul of man. Nobody is adequate for these things. That's the answer to Paul's rhetorical question. Not Paul, not Jonathan Edwards, not Tim Bailey or Stephen Baker or Max or Jody, not Michael Foster, not Jeff Ewer, none of the people that you'd, you'd think should be good at this or are good at this are adequate. Not anybody is adequate. And yet God will use every one of us if we will present ourselves to him to be used in this way. And the weaker, the better with God. It's always the foolish things, the weak things that God is pleased to use and especially bless. His power is all the more evident the weaker we are. What does God want from us then? How do we present ourselves to him to to be used in this way? Well, it's there in the last verse, in verse 17, it says, Paul says, we're not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. We begin by speaking the word of God in sincerity to those who are around us. It's not complicated. Will you know the word of God? You've given yourself to years of studying it and knowing it and applying it and hearing it applied to you. You know the word of God. You have it. God's given it to you. It's only a matter of putting it out there and letting it do its work. That's all that's required. Put it out there in all sincerity, in the sight of God, in Jesus Christ, and God will use it. So the question comes down to this. Are you going to let your light shine before men or are you going to hide it under a bushel? Will you speak in Christ in the sight of God or will you remain silent? One of those ascends to God as a pleasing sacrifice to him, something he takes great joy in, seeing his child take steps of faith. The other is odorless and tasteless to him and good for nothing. It reveals that we're ashamed of him and his words and we know that if we're ashamed of him and his words, he will also be ashamed of us before his father. So there's a lot on at stake with Love Bloomington, isn't there? There's a lot at stake with our souls, with this work. And the question is, are we going to hide it under a bushel or are we going to let it shine? 
How does triumph sound to you? How does the pleasure of God and the satisfaction of knowing that he's pleased with you sound? Brothers and sisters, let's give ourselves this summer to the work of spreading abroad the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the sweet aroma of Jesus Christ in every locker room, every ball field, every grocery store, everywhere we go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and its encouragement. And I pray, Lord, that you would use it to strengthen us with all power to have faith for the work of loving our neighbors and proclaiming your word without fear. Help us, Father, to do this work of speaking in Christ, in the sight of God, words of edification and truth that come to us from your word and to spread abroad this sweet aroma of the knowledge of Jesus Christ in every place. We ask this in your name. Amen.